Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. On July 30th, 1864, a Confederate force under the command of Brigadier General John McCausland captured the city of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. A year after the terrible bloodletting at Gettysburg, this time the Southern rebels returned seeking revenge for Union depredations in Virginia. After ransoming the town for $500,000, the Confederate general torched the city filled with non-combatants. The burning of Chambersburg remains a shocking reminder of the brutal reality of the American Civil War and a seminal moment in the conflict. On this episode, we discuss the burning of Chambersburg, July 1864. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events, We have a lot coming up this summer. I hope to meet with you soon. You can visit our Facebook page, The Conversation's Ever-Growing, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we venture back to the annals of the American Civil War to talk about one of the more important events that doesn't get a lot of play, largely because it doesn't typically fit into the way we think of the conflict. The burning of Chambersburg, as we'll see, is going to be a watershed moment of sorts. It's a moment that reveals the nasty and terrible reality of what a civil war can do to the fabric of a society. Not just pitting army versus army, but also neighbor versus neighbor, and as we'll see, even cousin versus cousin. I'm super excited about this episode, uh, because again, when we talk about the civil war, you're talking about a very, very popular and important subject, but also one that is uh, little known and even lesser understood. So the burning of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania may not mean a lot to you now, but hopefully it will uh, in the next 45 minutes. Now a couple things about this particular topic as we move forward. Um, The burning of Chambersburg does not make a lot of sense if you view it by itself. And I think one of the problems we have with the Civil War is that we do tend to break down individual battles uh, as their own independent parts, not seeing them as part of a larger machine that is the American Civil War. A couple points worth noting, uh, of all of the people that go into history professionally to study, something like 90% of them go into the American Civil War as their field. So what I'm saying is, if you are a would-be historian, if you're training to be a historian, if you're in graduate school, uh, or if you're uh, in high school, or even if you're just interested in making making a career in history uh, as a park ranger uh, or as a volunteer, understand that going into the American Civil War 
is a very competitive field. Highly competitive, in fact. So much so that odds are you probably won't get a job. Uh, That being said, if you are exceptional, if you rise to the top, then there will be a position for you out there somewhere. Be like me. Study one of the obscure wars. I study empire on the American frontier. And that largely develops into the Seven Years' War, uh, Pontiac's Rebellion in the American Revolution uh, in the West. So, here I am, uh, podcasting with you today. Um, Maybe going to finance. You could end up being President of the United States. Uh, At any rate, uh, we're going to talk about the burning of Chambersburg today. And this happens, just for some context, one year after the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, when we've talked about the American Civil War before, there's a few points we want to touch on. Uh, And we're going to do them very briefly, but I think they're important. If you haven't listened to any Civil War episodes before or studied the Civil War, this story today is not a story that involves Robert E. Lee. Not really in the specific sense, maybe in a general sense. Uh, But understanding his view of the war is an important one. For Robert E. Lee, winning the American Civil War was not about conquering the United States, the North, the Union. It wasn't. For him, it was basically a replication of what George Washington did in the American Revolution. The Americans did not defeat the British. The Americans did not vanquish the British. The Americans made their war of independence long and painful and expensive. And most importantly, because Britain was a democracy, they made the war seem very unpalatable. Enough that in 1782, people voted out the pro-war party and voted in a peace party. And voila, America's free. That was Robert E. Lee's long game. Abraham Lincoln had to run for re-election in 1864. His opponent, very likely, would be of an opposite stance, that is, a stand of peace and reconciliation. If you could convince people in the North, if you're a Southerner, that this war just wasn't worth fighting anymore. Then in 1864, Lincoln's voted out, somebody else has voted in, and there is your uh, victory if you're a Confederate. You could win all the battles you wanted. Lee knew that. But that wasn't necessarily going to win you the war, as history showed. He had limited supplies. He had limited men. He had almost no manufacturing capacity. He was really competing against the ticking clock. And by July of 1864, when we're talking about tonight... It's now game time. It's now in the sort of urgent period. The elections of 1864 are just a handful of months away. July, August, September, October, November. Five months away. And this is when, if you're a Confederate, you need something to convince Northerners that they can't win. Now, you tried this twice before. You invaded Maryland in 1862. You fought at the Battle of Antietam. Sort of a stalemate, but overall pretty terrible. The single bloodiest day in American history. And then Lee and the Confederates invaded the North again in 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg. Very very famously the largest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere and many consider to be uh, the high watermark of the Confederacy in the war. They lost that battle. That was one of the only times Lee was truly defeated on the field of battle as the, uh, as the commanding officer of the Army of Northern Virginia. And it was a watershed moment. 
And it was also sort of, if you want to say this, the end of somewhat sense of civility in the war. Because by 1864, the Civil War reveals itself to be really what it was all along. It was not a battle between armies. It could look like that. But it was a battle between political ideologies. It was a partisan conflict. And when the armies weren't fighting on the battlefield in these benchmark moments like Fredericksburg, like Antietam, like Gettysburg and Spotsylvania, uh, when they weren't doing that, the war was still being fought. But fought by neighbors and fought by relatives and fought in quick hit-and-run raids and fought in impromptu examples of renegade vigilante justice. Um, You'll see what I mean. That's an ugly war. I mean, a war like this tears at the very fabric of a society, of a nation. Um, Again, imagine the most heated political debate you've ever had. And you're going to have some if you're listening to this in 2016. uh, Because we've got an election coming up. If you're in the future, I apologize. Uh, You had to choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, And, and, again, to our grandchildren, I I weep for you. But um, you're going to get in some political debates. Now imagine a political debate so intense and so strong that you literally will kill somebody and also potentially be killed, and now you're in the Civil War. I mean, horrid stuff. So let's fast forward to one year after Gettysburg, July of 1864, and see what in the world is going on. At that point, the idea of invading the North yet again for Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia is probably not going to happen. His army is pretty well entrenched in Virginia. Uh, His corps are spread out. The different corps commanders are uh, really sort of going off on their own a bit. That is to say, uh, each of Lee's corps, that's the three main parts of his army, are are operating uh, independently. Of course, under Lee's command in a general sense, but independently of one another. One of those is under command of a man named Jubal Early. Uh, old Jube, as they called him. Jubal Early was, a again, a confederate. He was a vehement and vicious anti-unionist. Uh, he was a slave owner. He believed in the cause of slavery. He very much believed, in, I think, in the sensibility that if there is no slavery, there is no South. Uh, he was relentless in his partisanship. He was a guy that really pulled no punches when it came time to fight. If it meant burning down a home or burning down a town, as we'll see, he was not afraid to do that. But Jubal Early's part of the Army of Northern Virginia uh, is operating in 1864 in and around the Shenandoah Valley. And of course, they're not alone. Opposing him is a commander named Major General David Hunter. He's in the Union Army. And he's been operating as well. Now, David Hunter is one of these guys that I think really epitomizes the federal, northern, or union cause. David Hunter is not a very skilled leader on the battlefield, uh, but he is a good subordinate. David Hunter is uh, a person that wants to complete his objective and has very little care or mind for politeness. So in this regard, you're going to see why this scene gets to be so bad. But one of the things that will happen to David Hunter and his army in 1864, is that he breaks away from his fight with the larger part of the actual 
Southern Army, the actual Army of Northern Virginia. And he very quickly, as he moves through Virginia and into West Virginia, brand new state, finds himself under the attack of uh, what we would describe as Southern guerrillas. That is, independent operators, um, insurgents, people not part of any army, uh, but who have a gun and are more than happy to kill uh, Hunter's men when they get the chance. This is a big problem for Hunter, because he's not really experienced in dealing with it. That kind of fighting is not new to the Civil War. It is very prominent in what we call the Western theater of the war. That is to say, uh, everything in Tennessee and Kentucky uh, and Missouri and so on, Mississippi and so on. Um, the Trans-Mississippi, which is everything to the west of the Mississippi, has that almost exclusively. This idea like men like uh, Quantrail's Raiders, uh, these sort of unofficial militias that do not play by the rules, by the way. Uh, they operate completely on cheap shots. That's how guerrilla armies work. Um, they attack larger forces by bending the rules or fighting on their own terms, which can be very problematic. But for David Hunter in Virginia, he's not used to this at all. He's not expecting this at all. And it's not something he has a lot of patience for. I mean, he'll deal with fighting Confederate armies. He's not very good at it, but he'll do it. But fighting these guerrillas, these rebels, uh, is something that really gets under his skin. And one of the sort of uh, straw that breaks the camel's back moments is when he finds six of his own soldiers near uh, what is today Charlestown, West Virginia. That's, by the way, where John Brown was hung, if you know anything about him. And he'll find them tied to posts with their throats cut ear to ear, as, as they say, uh, by these guerrillas. Nowhere to be found. There was no honor in that death. It was not a battle. It was essentially murder. But these are the kind of things that when I think of the Civil War, I think about. Because there's a lot of glory and honor in these set-piece battles. Big armies of 40,000 versus armies of you know 50,000 or whatever. But it's the nastiness. It's the, uh, it's the cold-bloodedness of people that makes me sort of sad when I talk about the Civil War. Because these are Americans killing Americans. And don't forget that. Uh, these are not foreign armies fighting each other. These are fellow countrymen murdering one another over what is essentially a political debate. Uh, so, awful stuff. Uh, and again, a much grittier and dirtier kind of war than we're used to seeing in a lot of reenactments. But that's why we're talking about it. Because I want you to see history the way that I see it. Uh, as twisted and, and as tormented as that might be at times. Um, but I promise I won't intentionally try and steer you wrong. At any rate... David Hunter, finding his men killed and having to deal with this all the time, uh, releases a statement. And this is spread all throughout Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Uh, and it reads this. I'm going to read this word for word. I don't do it often. I always preface it when I do because I hate when I listen to a history podcast and a person's clearly reading something. I hate listening to anyone talk about history when they're clearly reading something. It's like, you know, does this person have a pulse? I can do it. But anyway, I will read this. He says, quote, For every train fired upon, or soldier of the Union wounded or assassinated by bushwhackers in any neighborhood within reach of my command, 
the houses and other property of every secession sympathizer, residing within a circuit of five miles from the place of the outrage, shall be destroyed by fire. And David Hunter is serious. And as we're going to see, he'll do that. Uh, anytime he's attacked, his wagons are attacked, communications destroyed, uh, he wreaks vengeance by burning not towns, but individual people's homes. He even burns, get this, he even burns his own cousin's home because his cousin sympathizes with the South. Uh, and that is a pretty nasty and difficult way of fighting. The question is, is it a unique way of fighting? There's a lot of hyperbole thrown around in the Civil War. I've been called a hyperbolic writer, if you read my stuff, because I like to tell a good story, God forbid. And yes, I do like drama, typically in my life. Uh, but at any rate, um, it, it's not atypical to see this sort of partisan warfare in the form of burning homes. What is unusual is that it happens in the East. You see that a lot in the Trans-Mississippi West. You see it a lot in the Western theater. But this notion of burning down towns and villages and homes, that's sort of a byproduct of a, of a war that is seeking an identity. Again, 1864, it's not the war as it used to be. If there is one side that burns more private property than any other, we can pretty sufficiently say it is the Union side, the Federal side, or the Northern side. Typically speaking, not always, but you can reasonably say uh, that the Southern armies had sort of a, a no... Uh, no civilian policy when it came to the actual fighting. Um, Robert E. Lee gives orders. I'll read these two. He says, quote, We cannot take vengeance for the wrongs our people have suffered without lowering ourselves in the eyes of all. And he ordered his men to, again, uh, never burn or destroy private property uh, in any country, enemy or their own. Did it happen that way? Me. You know, I'll say like 70% of the time that held up. But it's a war. Things happen. Farms are destroyed. Homes are destroyed. But Lee was very adamant that as Southerners, as gentlemen, they cannot behave that way. And, you know, not all the Southerners were gentlemen. You have a lot of, you know, pretty excitable young men in that group. Uh, but that was something that Lee really ascribed to. And it goes back to England, essentially. This idea of being a gentryman and an aristocrat and, st and staying and remaining uh, in control. Uh, but the Union had no such issues. I mean, they burnt towns all the time. So Confederates kind of had their blood boil a little bit. Every time they'd read the newspapers that a Union official or an officer would enter a town and destroy it. Uh, rummage it, pillage it, and annihilate it. That happened a lot. And Southerners typically had a negative view, obviously, of the Union because of that. And they said, this is what separates us from them. And this is why we are ultimately uh, the better men. Well, when David Hunter starts burning homes in the Shenandoah Valley, that's going to get the attention of a lot of important people. One of them is uh, General Jubal Early, who we've talked about already, uh, in command of one whole wing of Robert E. Lee's army. He had witnessed this, he had seen destruction by Hunter's troops, uh, and he had decided that enough was enough, and, uh, quote, uh, it was time to try and stop this mode of warfare by some act of retaliation. One of the reasons I'm reading so many quotes from this one is because 
you know, you're not going to find a lot of information on the burning of Chambersburg anywhere else but here. Because there's so many battles, and we want to make sure we get the important stuff out there. But this is going to be a rare case where a Confederate army will march on a city in the north and burn it. So uh, it's important we understand that. Jubal Early will will not uh, be part of this in that he's got much bigger fish to fry, but he calls upon a brigadier general under his command named John McCausland. And it will be McCausland with a ca- his cavalry brigade uh, that will uh, strike on a city in the north. But the question is where? Now, if you're in the Shenandoah Valley, you're in the middle of Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania is really just a short hop and skip away through Maryland over the border. It's very easy to get there. You follow the Shenandoah Valley. Once you hit Pennsylvania, it becomes known as the Cumberland Valley. Really, it's all part of something called the Great Valley. It goes from Vermont to uh, Alabama. But uh, uh, McCausland is told, find a city, ransom it for money, and burn it. Now, there's a lot going on here. Uh, and it's important we kind of talk about that. One of the things that most Confederates discovered, and they didn't really know this was going to happen, when they invaded the North a year earlier, just before Gettysburg, really en route to Gettysburg, as time would tell, was that south-central Pennsylvania, as it turned out, was pretty heavily pro-South. I mean, they were pro-Confederate. Now, that doesn't hold up all the time. And doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Pennsylvania's a northern state. Uh, but when Southerners first crossed into south-central Pennsylvania, uh, they had found that most of the people there uh, were actually pretty favorably Confederate. Um, they had no uh, care for the plight of slaves. They had uh, no sense that Confederates were overstepping their bounds, trying to secede from the country. And some of them even welcomed these soldiers that were marching in what was effectively enemy territory. Uh, They fed them food from their farms. Some of them rose uh, Confederate flags in the middle of their town squares. Uh, And this really comes from the fact that the economy of south-central Pennsylvania relied heavily on Virginia and Maryland slaveholding states to buy whatever they were selling. So over the years, you know, removing borders in your mind between states, remember they don't really exist, uh, what was Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia in that one quadrant of the state sort of blended together. Uh, and Confederates found this, and they were amazed by this, and they moved through prominent cities in and around south-central Pennsylvania, like York, uh, like Lancaster, uh, and like Chambersburg. And they found relatively similar welcomes, except for one. And again, it was Chambersburg. Chambersburg was really the only city in south-central Pennsylvania that was die-hard Unionist. I mean, most of the other big cities in the area, York especially being one of them, uh, were sort of a mixed bag. Hard to tell if it was majority Confederate favorability or Union favorability, but Chambersburg is pretty clearly a Union-favorable city. So this made sense for uh, Brigadier General McCausland to attack it. When he went to Chambersburg, he was given very specific orders. And his orders were, take what you can from them, Give them the option of um, of surrendering, and if not, burn the city. That's what it was called, said to do. Uh, whenever he got there, he was given very clear and specific orders uh, to demand either $100,000 in gold or half a million dollars 
uh, in greenbacks money uh, at the time. And there was reasons for this. And again, you know, we talked about it. Uh, the Confederate states were on a very tight budget. They had limited supplies. They had limited sustenance. They needed cash. And to invade the North at this time and to demand that, really to, to ransom the town, had become kind of standard practice. And that's a lot of the war we never get to see. When McCausland and his about 2,800 men roll into Chambersburg, they're expecting a fight. And they really don't get one. They fire some cannon into the city. It hits nothing. There's no fire coming back. There were some skirmishes on their way north to Chambersburg, but uh, nothing of real any consequence. And again, getting that cash, getting that money from these people in this town was not just a secondary goal. It was paramount to what General McCausland was going to do. So when he and his officers rolled into Chambersburg, this northern city, also, by the way, uh, the headquarters of the Department of the Susquehanna of the Union Army, uh, so had some military significance too. Uh, he was fully prepared to find a mayor or a city councilman and deliver these demands. But as they went through the town, what he had found was many of the very important prominent members of Chambersburg society. Uh, Chambersburg, by the way, is just due west of Gettysburg. If you've ever been there, you sometimes have to drive through it on Route 30. Very cool trip, but an important one. Uh, what McCausland found was there was no major public officials in sight. The mayor was gone. The city councilman was gone. Um, he was calling for people to come out of their homes and, 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 and meet with him, you know, and nobody would. It was almost like a ghost town. People were there. They were hiding in their homes. Uh, but McCausland was sort of at a loss and he had very clear orders from his commanding officer, Jubal Early. His orders, quote, um, directed the town to be laid in ashes in retaliation for the burning of said houses and other houses of citizens of Virginia by federal authorities. Um, so that's what he, he sort of had. Uh, and again, it wasn't coming together the way they hoped. No one was offering money. No one was even answering his call. So it seemed like the likely consequence was to burn the city down. Now, here's where sources are a little bit more difficult to determine. Uh, some will say that McCausland gave them six hours to produce $100,000 worth of gold or half a million dollars in money. Um, others say he gave them three hours to do this. Some say they immediately began burning the town. But whatever the case, the deadline expired and the city of Chambersburg went up in smoke. Now, again, this podcast today, this episode, more than anything, is about viewing the Civil War for how it was on the ground for the average person, away from the big armies, and seeing the nasty, terrible, partisan conflict it really was. By the point that McCausland begins making these demands, you do start to see some members of Chambersburg society emerge, not to debate with him or treat with him, but to see what's going on. And by all accounts, there weren't many people initially very concerned that McCausland was going to do anything of the sort that he was talking about. Some laughed it off. Some believed that the Confederate code of conduct would prohibit them from burning down this town. Uh, some believed that the Federal Army would sweep in and save them. But by what the sources indicate, I, there was not a mass panic at this point yet. I mean, many people did flee the city already, but those that stayed behind um, just seemed more interested to see what's going to happen next, or maybe better to say, 
to see if they were willing to keep their word. Uh, whatever the case, again, the fires will begin. Now, in the middle of Chambersburg, uh, in terms of the layout of the city, there's a diamond. Today, there's a roundabout, but in that diamond is a massive courthouse, um, the Chambersburg County Courthouse. Uh, and Confederate soldiers will begin throwing chairs and furniture and piles of wood on the courthouse steps to effectively begin the torching of the town. And again, I must stress, Confederates burning homes and villages and entire cities was pretty unusual at this time. Uh, General Jeb Stewart was in that part of the state in 1862. He burned down one warehouse because the owner had union supplies in it. He was a government contractor. He didn't burn anything else. Uh, whenever Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia moved through in 1863, Gettysburg Campaign, something like 18 battles happened on that campaign besides the main Gettysburg battle. In fact, there was even another battle in Gettysburg before the Battle of Gettysburg. There's so much to learn here. You can read books by guys like my, my friend J.D. Petruzzi. He has a great book on this. Um... So look into it. But at any rate, um, uh, Scott Mingus has a really good book on this. Uh, Flames Beyond Gettysburg. I digress. I ain't getting paid for this. So no no free advertisements, but check them out. Um, J.D. Petruzzi, Scott Mingus. <clears throat> Whatever the case, there was this sense that Southerners really did live by a code of conduct. Um, that is, of course, if you were white. One of the pretty wretched and horrible things that happened when Southerners did invade the North previously, and this time too, uh, was that any time they'd come across a free black family, whether they were born free or were escaped slaves, they would take them hostage, and they would drag them back south south, and put them into bondage, into slavery, um, and all the horrible things that go along with that, uh, dehumanizing a person. We can't forget that either, that slavery is the driving factor here, the preservation of the way of life that surrounds it, and slaves as human beings were worth a lot of money. And soldiers would always look to pillage and plunder uh, a black person as nothing more than property, because that's how they viewed them. Uh, but this all is part and parcel of an invasion of the North. And this is how the people of Chambersburg really frame their opinion or their expectations of what's going to happen here in July of 1864. Now, the first officer to be given the orders to actually start the fire in Chambersburg uh, by McCausland uh, was a man named Peters, Colonel Peters. And Peters was well aware of this supposed Southern code of conduct, and he was not happy with the order. Uh, according to McCausland, he came up to him and he basically said, I don't want any part of this. Uh, McCausland recounts, quote, he asked me if it was being done by my orders. I showed him the orders of General Early which he refused to obey, declaring that he would break his sword and throw it away before he would obey it, as there were only defenseless women and children in Chambersburg. That is from McCausland himself, recounting that one of his uh, lower commanders, who he had direct control over, was disobeying an order from General Jubal Early himself to burn this town because there was no military significance and it was filled with women and children. You don't hear a lot about dissent in these armies very often. So I think it's important we kind of talk about that. Uh, but for his great and brave and noble stand, Colonel Peters was arrested shortly after the campaign uh, and punished. 
So uh, not a happy ending for him. At any rate, the very first building to be set ablaze after the courthouse was a warehouse. Uh, the courthouse and town hall will eventually be consumed in flame as well. Smoke fills the city. Uh, the entire center part of the town begins to burn. And again, it's a style of warfare most northerners do not anticipate. While this is going on, as you can imagine, the army is made up of a lot of young people. Uh, look what people do today. Give them a little bit of freedom. They get pretty enthusiastic. Uh, they begin raiding liquor stores, drug stores, hat stores. They begin stealing shoes and clothes. Um, it turns into exactly what Southerners despised Northerners for doing, which was pillaging and plundering uh, a town uh, of non-combatants. They believe there's no honor in that. But as it turns out for them, this bit of revenge, and that's what it was, this was revenge, uh, was a great release in a war that didn't have a lot of certainty involved and maybe was turning against them. As previously mentioned, most of the residents of Chambersburg had no idea that the, the Confederates would actually burn down their city. And even when the flames started consuming it, it's almost like they couldn't believe what they saw. One Confederate captain was there said, quote, It was impossible at first to convince the people, the females particularly, that their fair city would be burnt. Even when the torch was applied, they seemed dazed. Terror was depicted in every face, women, refined ladies and girls, running through the streets wild with fright, seeking some place of safety. I hadn't bargained for this, but such it was. So again, the city's burning. Revenge is being had. People's homes are being burned. People's homes are being pillaged and looted. Again, unusual for a southern army to do this, but this is revenge. So they're pouring it on. And they are still not fleeing for their lives. They're still not fully believing this is happening. In one instance, a confederate found an old woman on a rocking chair in her front porch, lit her house on fire, and told her to get up and run. Uh, she said she hasn't ran in years. He proceeded to pour gunpowder beneath her chair and told her that, Basically, you're going to run now or else you're going to explode. Um, no one's controlling this. Okay, there's no sense of uh, restraint in this group. And that's the Civil War as I see it. Uh, in one case, uh, in Chambersburg, there was a school. And a group of young Confederate soldiers broke in. Guns pointed, found the schoolmaster. And they asked him a question that does involve the use of an expletive that I do not use. Uh, referring to African Americans, the, the N-word. Uh, but these Confederates pointed a gun at the schoolmaster and said, did you ever teach expletives? Uh, the schoolmaster said proudly, yes, sir. And the young soldier said, damn him, fire this house. Uh, and of course, they, they burned it down. Uh, the only civilian to die in the burning of Chambersburg was an African American man, elderly man, uh, by all accounts a free man. Uh, his house was on fire, he would try to run out. A group of Confederate soldiers were there, and they pushed him back in. And they'd try to run out again, and they'd push him back in. And he tried to escape, and they'd push him back in. And, of course, this was probably uh, very humorous to them. Uh, but that man would die in his burning house as a result. And I, I'm, I'm very certain that they had probably no love lost. They had no remorse uh, for a dead, free black man at their hands. Again, um understand the world that they come from and that would be something that was not an issue now with the majority of the center of the town consumed in flames 
devastated. You do start to see a resistance movement develop amongst the citizens of Chambersburg. Uh, in one instance, a mob of men grab a Confederate soldier uh, who's looting a home. They throw him on the ground and they kill him. Accounts vary. Some will say that they shoot him. Others will say that they beat him to death. But either way, these are non-combatants killing one soldier. Uh, this is the epitome of a partisan conflict. I mean, this is good people, presumably, doing horrid things that they would never do under most other circumstances. So what's the cost of all of this? I mean, there's an actual physical tally of a cost, which I have here, uh, and there's also a, uh, a human cost, a human toll. So what is it? Well, one civilian's dead. Uh, a number of Confederate soldiers are killed during the burning, largely uh, from the people of the town killing them. Again, not disciplined, not controlled, kind of a bad situation. Uh, 274 homes are completely annihilated. The damage is about $1.5 million. Uh, and that's $1.5 million worth of 19th century money, not $1.5 million today. Because, hey, let's face it, 1.5 ain't what it used to be. It's still a lot. Uh, but even then, by 1 p.m., Chambersburg is abandoned, left in smoking ruins. This will be a major moment in determining the course of the war, and more importantly, uh, the uh, decorum of the war. That is to say, how the war will be fought. Jubal Early broke one of Robert E. Lee's most important rules of not damaging public property and leaving non-combatants alone. He's called a house-burning villain by Northern Press as a result of this. Uh, but Jubal Early is, is pretty clear on, on where he stands uh, when it comes to this. He says, quote, This was in strict accordance with the laws of war and was a just retaliation. I gave the order on my own responsibility. It afforded me no pleasure to subject non-combatants to the rigors of war, but I felt that I had the duty to perform to the people for whose homes I was fighting and I endeavored to perform it, however disagreeable it might be. Um, so there, I mean, Early had no remorse for this. He had no remorse for much of the things that he did. He was, again, sort of a house burner anyway. Um, he saw the Union as something that had to go, as something that violated his way of life. He had no problems with this. Um, the damage was total. But it was unique in that this almost never happened by Confederate forces anywhere else. If there was damage done as a result of Confederate attacks, uh, it was done by individuals of their own volition. But this is a command coming from Jubal Early himself, a corps commander in Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. So this is big. Uh, and this is something that, again, is going to be one of those moments where once you cross the line, uh, you never go back. Now, there's a lot of very cool artwork surrounding this, um, but it's not necessarily the kind of artwork you're used to seeing in the Civil War, because it's done by people who live in south-central Pennsylvania who want to remember this event, which I think is a very cool event. It doesn't have the panache or sex appeal of Gettysburg with all of the dead bodies and uh, pigs eating people, and maybe sex appeal is the wrong word, but at any rate. Uh, but it's an important one nevertheless. Now, how far, how deep does this go? Well, get this. A few months later, 
after the, the, the burning of Chambersburg in Fort Loudoun, Pennsylvania, which is just a little bit west of Chambersburg, uh, and also a fort built during my time period, the 18th century, the Seven Years' War. Uh, you can read about that in my new book, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, the Catanning Raid of 1756, due out November 2016 in bookstores near you. Uh, of course, Amazon.com and BradyKreitzer.com, you can buy it. But a Confederate soldier randomly wanders into Fort Loudoun. That is the town. And there's a blacksmith there. And the blacksmith uh, was approached about helping the soldier fix his, his horseshoes. Now, as the story goes, this blacksmith uh, is a former Union soldier. He recognizes the young man as a Confederate, as a C-Sesh, as they call him. Uh, and he picks up his blacksmith hammer and smashes the kid's brains in. Uh, in his shop, like, smashes his skull with a hammer. Um, and that's totally fine. That's totally normal. Totally cool. Um, it's a war, right? So, you know, murder, uh, is, is the Christian thing to do, I suppose. Uh, and that student, that young man is born, is buried, uh, in Fort Loudoun to this day. He's in an, he's in a tomb that's marked unknown soldier. We don't even know his name. And that's how he went. I mean, think about that. The civil war for us is all about monuments. This is where this general fell. This is where this charge happened. Let's put a monument there. This poor kid goes to a blacksmith shop to get his horseshoes fixed. And he's murdered with a hammer, unsuspectingly, in cold blood. And his name is never discovered. He's buried for eternity as unknown soldier. He had a family. He had a wife, maybe. He had kids. He was certainly someone's child. And they'll never know what happened to him. So, again, when we think about the Civil War, for me, that's the war I think about. I mean, that's how the war affected everything people's lives every day and then i want you to think about after the war how can you possibly move forward from there uh, it's amazing if you're an american uh this is a critical component of who we are for a reason some say america's most vital time period and with that in mind you can understand why and you also understand why you don't put that bad blood away very easily thank you for joining us remember if you have requests or questions Hit up the Facebook page, the Twitter, the email. I'm here all summer, folks. Uh, I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.